Welcome to the Classic City Church Podcast. For up-to-date information and ways to get involved, please visit us at classiccity.org. Continue our series and what we've been doing this last year and through the fall and then also now, we are doing a sermon, set of sermon series over our church mission statement. Now our church mission statement has four phrases. It is, we exist as a church to honor the greatness of Jesus Christ. We do it by growing spiritually, by living authentically, and by participating in his purposes. Now, last fall, we did a sermon series. It was five sermons long on the greatness of Jesus, how to honor it, what is so great about Jesus. We did five sermons on that. Then we did five sermons on how to grow spiritually. And now we're in the middle of talking about how to live authentically. And we have done three so far. This will be our fourth one. And the previous three, real briefly, one, one, we talked about what is authenticity? What does it mean to be authentic as a Christian? And the picture that I want to paint for you, and I think it's just very important and it just summarizes it so succinctly and so clearly, is the idea of if I had my arms out and I had a rubber band between my arms, and, if, if, and, and there's some tension there. Anybody, I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you have a rubber band and you're pulling on it, there's tension. And to me, there's a tension that we all experience in life as Christians. And it's a tension from what I'm doing, where I'm at right now, and where the Bible says I should be. And what we do with that tension is very important. Because what a lot of people will do, a lot of churches even will do, is we'll take what the Bible says and we'll move it to where we are or where our culture is just to make everybody happy, to be palatable and to not ruffle things up. And that's not right. What, what we do authentically as Christians is we move where we are to where Scripture is, to where the Bible says. That's to be authentic. There's a lot of talk in our culture about authenticity. And it really means basically you, we kind of do this phrase, you do you. You, you have, and we even use this phrase, you be, you know, it's about your truth. Your truth. As if, as a human being, as limited as I am, as stupid as I am, and as fallible as I am, and as selfish and delusional as I am. I mean, me. That I would sit there and think, My truth, what I really believe is going on inside me, should be what is prevailing, is absurd. And this is, uh, you know, Jesus one time taught this. As a matter of fact, he was talking about dietary laws and is it wrong to eat certain foods? And Jesus said, look, it's not what goes into somebody that defiles them, but it's what comes out of them. Because he said, really, it's from within the human heart that things like impurity and greed and evil come from. And so when, when I'm being true to myself, sometimes you're just placating to your own selfishness. And that's not authentic. It certainly is not authentic for a Christian. We want to be aligned. We want to be true to what God's Word says. 1 John 3.18 talks about love. It says, hey, don't love just in word and in speech, but love in actions and in deeds, and in truth. And so when we talk about being authentic, it's about action lining up with truth. And that's what we we talked about the first week. Second week, we talked about the fear of the Lord. Simply, it just means that you and I 
believe God is more significant than we are. And we live in light of that. He is far more significant than us. And we live a life that reveres him and respects his greatness. And we understand our, 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 where we are in comparison to him. And the third thing we talked about last week was character. Character is basically, uh, it serves our soul the way our skeletal system serves our body. It is, your character is the skeletal system of your soul. It shapes you and it protects you. We talked about how character is developed. Now, this week, I want to change feet a little bit because we've talked about very general categories. You know, what is authenticity, the fear of the Lord, and character. And I want to talk about one specific topic because it is so prevailing, such a prevailing part of our culture, and that is the topic of sexual integrity, having integrity sexually. I was listening to a professor of women's studies who has talked about this topic and looking, listened to a brief lecture she was doing, and she talked about how our culture is the first culture in America that has been saturated with pornography. I didn't grow up in the world that a lot of you young people grew up in, but, but your world has been saturated with it. It's been incredibly influenced by it, and it, is a, it's a, it, is a, it has had terrible effects if, if you Look at it. They say that 88%, don't look at it. I'm going to say, well, I said if you look at it. Didn't mean that. If you look at the stats, don't look at that. <laughs> what am I thinking? I'm going to take that wrong. 88% of online pornography depicts sex in a degrading, in a humiliating, uh, in, in a very perverted way. And this is what's being fed to us. It's incredibly accessible. It's affected our lives in a, in a terrible, terrible way. And so I want to talk about sex and sexuality, and this is a topic, I'm going to be really honest with you, it's very uncomfortable for me. It's a very uncomfortable topic to talk about. I remember when my oldest son, Daniel, was in elementary school, early in elementary school. One day, we were just riding around hanging out, and he looked at me, and he says, Dad, what is sex? And of course, I answered him. I was very bold. I didn't flinch. I told him, sex is the number between five and seven. What are they, what are they teaching you in school? You know, and I was just kind of like, real strong guy here. And, um, but, but one reason I think it can be very uncomfortable for us, I know it is for me, is because I, I know there's a lot of shame associated with it. Probably all of us have had some time in our lives where we've compromised ourselves sexually. In that part of our life. And there's shame and there's embarrassment and there's unease. And we, we probably feel a little bit like just very unworthy before God. And I think a really healthy approach to sex is to marry three things that are very important. One is we marry the standard. We marry the standard. We don't compromise the standard of what the Bible says about sex and about sexuality. <clears throat> we don't compromise it. Whether our society says so or whatever we just don't we stick to again we're going to be authentic we're going to stick to what scripture clearly teaches about it but second thing we got to do is we need to understand this too there's cleansing for our sins and our mistakes and there's also empowerment to live up to that standard there's a great verse it's in first john excuse me not first john first corinthians chapter six and if you read first corinthians six and seven it, it, those two chapters talk a lot uh, about sex and about sexuality and how it just sort of practical things that we 
have to work through. But one of the things it says there, it, it says, don't be deceived. Paul says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. And he begins to name what he means by it. And he says these things. The sexually immoral. Adulterers. Those that are involved in homosexuality. Idolaters. The greedy. Swindlers. Drunkards. He says, I'm warning you. Those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he follows that strong standard up. And he says, and that's what some of us were. But when we met Christ, we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified. What a powerful thing. He says, you know, the stains of sin, whatever they were, you are washed. You're cleansed. They've been removed. They're gone. They've been washed. He says, you've been justified. That means legally. There's no penalty. You've been acquitted of your crimes, and you've been sanctified. That means you've been restored to the purposes God has for your life. You're His. And so while we want to believe in a standard, and we want to not compromise the standard, we don't want to compromise grace. We don't want to compromise the cross. We don't want to compromise what the blood of Jesus does when it touches a sinner's soul. It makes it clean and pure and holy in the sight of God. We don't want to do that. But we do want to make sure as Christians living for the Lord, representing Him, we have sex in its right place, in its right spot, in where it's supposed to be. Years ago, when Elise and I were first homeowners, we owned a home on the east side. And we had, just before we had Daniel, our oldest, then a couple years later we had our second son, Xander. And one morning, it was in the winter, and this happens in Athens about every five or six years, it got really cold. It was like 10, 11, 12 degrees down like that, very windy, and it was early in the morning, like 3, 30, 4 o'clock, and Xander, our youngest baby, woke up, and he was crying, and so I just decided, I got up, and I got his bottle out, and I woke up, and I got in the hallway, and I turned the light on, and the light didn't come on. Now, maybe this is a little too much information for you guys, but I had this recurring dream that I wake up, and I try to turn the light on, and it doesn't come on. I don't know why I have it, but I have it. And so for a second there, you know, you're delirious. It's 3.30 in the morning. You're going, well, I'm having that dream again. And then I realize, no, I'm not having a dream. This is real, I think, and I'm cold, and and my son is still screaming upstairs. So I had to go, and I I went, and I, I got his bottle ready, and I put some formula in there, and I turned on the faucet and the water just started you know barely coming out then it came out and I was like oh my goodness what that meant is the pipes were about to break and my youngest son had saved us from a disaster thank God for him so I got his bottle ready and I you know did my thing I went back to bed bundled up woke up the next morning and the next morning when I woke up it was about seven o'clock and my next-door neighbor, he and his wife, they were grad students, came banging on my door. And I was like, what, what is he doing? And he'd never done that before. And he was banging on my door. And he said, Lee, can you come help me? Our pipes have burst. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a minister. 
I wanted to share the gospel with them at some point. I think I will go because that will open up a door to share with him. Being a good guy, he'll understand I'm a good Christian. So I threw on some sweats and went over there. And man, we got in his garage. Water was just flying everywhere, pouring out of his ceiling where his pipes had burst. It was going everywhere. It was going all over his, the, the ceiling, the, down the walls. It was starting to get over into his kitchen. And it was just going everywhere. We couldn't turn it off. We didn't know how to turn it off. You know, you have to have one of those T's that you get at Home Depot. If you're a homeowner, that's the best eight bucks you're ever going to spend possibly. So you can turn your water off at the meter. We did, he didn't know that. I didn't know that. We're sitting here helpless for two hours. I'm covered in water. It is 20 degrees outside. I just wanted to share the gospel with him. I thought, I'm going to stand in his living room and preach an hour-long sermon after this. You know, this is, this is, I'm getting some, a platform. And, but we were just covered in water. I was shivering. He was mad. He was just, you know, and we couldn't get this thing started. Finally, hours later, somebody from Georgia Power came and was fixing the power, and he showed us how to turn it off. But he had water everywhere, damaged everywhere. It was horrible. It was awful you know, just rotting out his drywall. He had to get a lot of work done to his house. Hey, let me ask you guys a question. How many of you love running water? Everybody like it? Aren't you glad for plumbing? You know, you, don't, you aren't having to go to a room out back of the house to use a restroom. You can, you know, you want to get a drunk of water, you can just drink some water. You know, plumbing's a great thing, isn't it? Ice machines, all the stuff it brings us. But if that water gets out of those pipes... It goes somewhere it's not supposed to go. You have a mess. And what we have in our culture is a mess. And while the church sometimes reacts by treating sex as a taboo, which we shouldn't, our world treats sex like a god. And it's a terrible god. It's a cruel, vicious god if you treat it as one. The purpose of sex and the power of sex is when it is involved in a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. When sex is in that place, a man and a woman in a covenant relationship, it is powerful. It makes that marriage strong. It creates life it, you, bring out about a fam, you can bring about family. It brings out a oneness between two people. It is a beautiful thing. It is a powerful thing, but it needs to be there. And when it is, it's powerful. You know, they did a survey years ago. And they did surveys of two kinds of couples. They did surveys of couples who had lived together and then finally you know, got married. And they surveyed Christian or just religious couples who didn't live together, who didn't have sex till they were married, and they wanted to see how those two different decisions developed over time. And what they found out is after a year, the couples that had been living together and the couples that were, you know, waited and were, you know, waited till they were married, uh, they were having sex about the same amount after a year. After a year. And they found out three years later, this couple that had waited was actually having sex twice as much. Three years later. They found out 
Seven years later, the couple that had waited was having sex five times as much. Now, guys, there's a lot of good reasons to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. But this works. God's way works. Water works when it's in a pipe. And so I want to just look real quickly at a passage in in Thessalonians about some of the things Paul says and the way he encourages us to really live this out that I think will be helpful for us. This 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. And he says this, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of our Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That is, you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn how to control their own body in a way that is honor, holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. As we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, who gives you the Holy Spirit. Now, let me give you a little background of Thessalonica. This was a, a Greek um, the country that was part, uh, uh, Providence. It was part initially with the Greek Empire. It was a very prominent city uh, during the reign of Alexander. And the Greeks were very, very immoral culture. They were very sophisticated, but again, very immoral. And there was, a, for instance, a guy named Demosthenes, who in the 300 B.C.s literally said this. He said, we have mistresses to take care of our needs. We have courtesans, which were prostitutes, to take care of our sexual pleasures. And then we have wives who will bear us children and guard our homes. That's how they thought about sexuality in women. And so, and this was very prevalent in this culture, very prevalent in Roman culture. You know, when we talk about the sexual revolution, Christianity was a sexual revolution. If you read the ancient world and, and what was going on in the, in the times of Israel, Moses brought about the first sexual revolution. The gospel brings about a sexual revolution to a culture. And so Paul is writing to these guys, and he's saying, listen, you guys are pleasing God. And and the word there and the, the, the picture there is really beautiful. It means to smell something that smells great. You ever smell something that smells great? And he, just, he starts out by telling you guys this. This is what you're like to God. You're like a tremendous fragrance. A wonderful fragrance. You are pleasing God. And I want you to be more and more so. So here's an area of your life I want you to, to, to concentrate on. I want you to be sanctified. I want you to be separated for God. For what he wants in your life. And what that involves is that you, become, you be sexually pure. You move away from what he calls sexual immorality. Now, the word for sexual immorality in the Greek 
is the word pornea. Of course, we get the word pornography from it. But pornea, if you take the word and, and go back in time and study its entomology and wonder where did it, it came from, that the original idea behind this word that we translate immorality, pornea, was the idea of something that was being used in a way that it was not really designed for. That if something was made by an author or a creator or by an inventor to be used a certain way, and someone just found it and was using it in a way that was not the way the inventor intended it, it was called immoral. It was called pornea. Let me give you an example. I just recently, within the last couple of months, got a new Apple laptop. I got one of the M1s. I waited and waited. I got one of the M1s. You know, the, the, it's a beautiful machine. It's, it's a, mine's kind of silver. It's really cool. And I can touch my finger on it and wonderful things happen. It's a great machine. But if I took this machine, this fabulous machine that's so sophisticated, can do so many awesome things, and I took it and I used it as a plate holder, as a food tray. It's just the same shape. I could do that if I wanted to. Just put my drink on it and a plate of food. And just That was my plate holder. What would you say? You say, come on, are you kidding me? That's not what that, that the, the, the person that made that didn't make that to be a plate holder. They made it to do all kind of incredible things. Why are you using it like that? That, that, that would be the word. It'd be if, I, if you had a copy of the Constitution of the United States and you use it as a napkin to wipe your hands, you'd go, what are you doing? That's not what that's for. And so Paul is saying, listen, don't possess your sexuality. Don't use it. Don't experience it in a way that is completely different than what the Creator intended. Don't be involved in pornea. Don't be involved in, in being immoral. And he goes on here and he talks about how we need to control our bodies, not like the pagans do. The Greco-Roman world literally believed the body was a place to express your desires and your passions and your wants. It was just, it existed. It was just there to, to fulfill your desires and your lust and your pleasure. And what Paul taught is knowing your body is not for pleasure, although it's great to be able to experience them in the right context. He was saying your body is meant to be a vessel of the Lord. Your body is meant to be inhabited by the Holy Spirit. What a powerful thought. It's, it's not a vessel that is, that is driven and, and molded by carnal impulse. And whatever we feel like and whatever thought comes in our head or whatever desire I have or whatever, you know, things getting conjured up in my soul, he says, no, 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 no. It's, it's to be a vessel of the Holy Spirit. That God would inhabit you. That He would express Himself through you. That He would live and radiate from your being. That's what we're meant for. And He uses this word all throughout. To describe us, it's the word holy. The word holy means belonging to the Lord. In verse 3, let me read it to you here. It says, God's will is that you should be sanctified. The word there is the 
Same word as holy. In verse 7, he says, God has called us to a holy life. In verse 4, control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. In verse 8, he talks about how God has given us the Holy Spirit. What Paul is saying to this group of new Christians, he's saying, hey, look, you guys are pleasing God. You smell great. He loves the way you, he loves your fragrance, but to do, let's, let's do it more and more. Let's get this area of our life right. right. Let's, let's sanctify ourselves. Let's deal with sexual sins that are really holding us back that aren't aligned with what Scripture says. And then he says, he kind of ends by saying, hey, look, let me tell you this too. I've been real nice about this. You better do this. <laughs> it's kind of how he ends. Let me give you a warning. This is not a good idea from Paul. It's not a good idea from a person or a fuddy-duddy. He says, this is God's word to you to accept. Sex has its proper place in a marriage covenant between a man and a woman. Now, we have a book in the Bible, and I want to just close with this, uh, it, this thought here. It's a book in the Bible called The Song of Solomon. Really great book. Beautiful poetry. It's about eight chapters long. And it was written during a time in Israel's history when they had experienced a lot of decline. And the reason they had experienced decline, they had gone down under the reign of a king named King Solomon. Solomon had taken the kingdom up to a height, great place, but then he got, and really he got defiled sexually. He just got completely out of control sexually. I always describe Solomon as a combination of four people. He was a great king. He was an inventor. He was a genius. You know, he's kind of a, you know, Bill Gates and, you know, Barack Obama and Albert Einstein. But he also had a little bit of Ric Flair in him. You know, and he just, he just went downhill. And so they, there was this poem written, and it was written by a gal that, was, that lived in the country. She was a Shulamite. She was actually a, a woman of color, which is beautiful. And he whisked her away. Her, her, Solomon would send these guys out to go find beautiful girls for him. And then his caravan came and whisked her away to the castle. And she's a country girl, and she's there with all these girls. And they are so, they just want to have one night with this king. And she is going on about, no, I'm in love with a shepherd boy back in my hometown. I don't care about him. Solomon tries to come on to her. She says, I don't want anything to do with this. And it's a story of love. And she leaves and is reunited with her shepherd. And it's a beautiful thing. And when they end this poem, this series of poems and the stories of it in chapter 8, it's a really pretty passage. One of my favorite in the Bible. It's in Song of Solomon. It's verse 8. But uh, chap, verse 6 of chapter 8, let me read it to you. And she and her love, her husband, are talking to each other. In verse 6, and here's what they say to each other. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame, many waters cannot quench love. Rivers can't sweep it away. If one were to give all their wealth and their household for love, it would be utterly scorned. She's talking about the love and the covenant love she has with her man, with her husband. 
She describes it in these really powerful terms. You know, love is powerful. Love is passionate. Describes it like a fire just blazing. Love is permanent. It doesn't get washed away. He says love is priceless. Somebody gave all their wealth for love, it'd be utterly scorned. She looked at Solomon and all his wealth and said, I don't want it. I want my guy. This is what covenant love is about. It's, it's a bond, a priceless bond that happens between a man and a woman. When we get married, we call it the sacrament of marriage. Sacrament. The word sacrament means a sacred moment. This is what I believe. When a husband and wife, when I have the privilege of doing a wedding, a man and a woman are before me getting married, I believe it is, I'm just doing a ceremony. And I do a really good one, by the way. But I'm just doing a ceremony. Really good. I used to say when we get to heaven, if there's an SB for great wedding ceremony, I may not win it, but I'm going to be on the list, by the way. I just, do, I just love doing them. And it, but anyways, but, but they're, they're right there. But here's what I believe. I'm just, going, I'm just doing a ceremony, hopefully doing a fine job. But I believe God is there. It's a sacred moment. God is there to do this thing. What he loves to do is to bind a man and a woman into a covenant together under his lordship. He loves doing that. He comes and he makes the two one. It is a sacred moment. When you have the privilege of standing before God with a partner, somebody you're in love with for life, he binds those two together for life. And it is in that covenant that sex should be expressed. In that covenant, it is a beautiful thing. When the water is in the pipes, we all live better. Sex is a beautiful thing. It's a terrible God. A terrible God. I want to encourage you just with what this passage is talking about and what the way the Bible talks about all throughout it. Look, there's no mystery about what the Bible says about sex. It's very consistent. It's very clear. It's amazing how people play games with it. It is so clear. It's not even, you know, it, come on. The question is, will we align ourselves with it or not? Are we going to be authentic? Are we going to be real? What are we going to do when where I'm at and what I feel is here, the Bible says here? And I want to encourage you, move toward it. Like what Paul told this, this group of people he's writing in Thessalonica. Hey, you please God. Please him all the more. Let's be sanctified. Let's be clean this area of our life. Let's, let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, you know, just powerful truth that's in your word. And we thank you for how it works. And we see so many cases where it doesn't work. Or we as human beings, and we, we all probably to some extent have, have made sex a God. And we see how terrible a God it is. But Lord, we know it really is a beautiful thing. And your word says it's a beautiful thing. It shares it as a beautiful thing within a marriage covenant. And I pray we'd commit to that. Lord, I pray for the marriages in this place. I pray you'd make them great. I pray you'd make them a, a place of appreciation, a, a place where there is a power and passion and permanence 
and pricelessness being experienced by both partners and by their children. I pray those that aren't married yet, you would give them grace, Lord, to, to trust you, uh, to bring about that right person and to not compromise until they meet them and you're really the one bringing it about. Father, I pray for those of us that have, just, that have fallen, that have, that have come short of this ideal in some way in our lives, whether in our, in our decisions we've made, maybe we've flirted and been involved in, in uh, looking at things we shouldn't look at on the Internet, whatever. I pray you would bring by the Holy Spirit a powerful sense of cleansing to those that repent and turn to you, a, a sense of cleansing, a sense that these stains have been wiped away, a sense of the filth being removed and gone and them standing just glistening in your presence. Lord, you said in Zechariah 13.1 that you were going to open up a fountain in the house of David to cleanse from sin and impurity. We thank you that you've done that. Through the shed blood of your son, you open up a fountain that cleanses us, and I pray we'd receive it and know it. Lord, give us grace to be your holy people, to live distinctly, and glorify you in this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.